It really is beginning to feel a lot like Christmas around here, everywhere you go. Um, all right, open to the book of James, letter of James. We're in James tonight, and then this week we're going to be reading Jude. Which is, I, I love Jude. I have a special place in my heart for the letter of Jude. Um, and then that will lead, that'll take us to the end of the year. Uh, the week after that is our uh, Christmas Eve service. We don't have we won't have church on Saturday night in two weeks from now, and everyone will be gathering on Friday night, the twenty fourth, out at uh, the King's Church where LCF meets. So, um, looking forward to that. We're just going to have uh, communion, candlelight service. Shouldn't be too long. Should be kid friendly, uh, from what I understand. Uh, But turn to James, and let's pray as we get into the Word. Father, thank you for giving us your Son, and thank you for giving us this testimony of your Son uh, that we call the Bible, that we call Scripture. And Lord, we know that uh, it is not what contains eternal life, Uh, but it speaks of you, Jesus. And you are eternal life. And so, Lord, I pray more more than anything else that we would meet Jesus in this letter. And that you would uh, take us deeper into the life that you have uh, called us to live. Open our hearts, open our ears. Uh, Let us hear what you have for us tonight, Lord. We are your church. We are your people. And we yield ourselves uh, to the power of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so this is, this is a letter to um, the 12 tribes in the dispersion, and that, that would be Jewish believers. Uh, most people think it's, it's Jewish believers, the 12 tribes. Um, First Peter was written to also uh, the elect exiles in the dispersion. Um, but the 12 tribes, when you say 12 tribes, that was a distinctly Jewish title. You wouldn't have said uh, 12 tribes, meaning the people of God. This is the 12 tribes. So, and James was also known as the apostle, one of the apostles to the Jews, along with Peter in Jerusalem. And so he's writing to those Jewish believers who have come to, uh, come to faith in the Messiah. Um, but this is also a letter for us, because as we know, there's not... There's not two kinds of people of God. There aren't Jewish Christians and then Gentile Christians. Uh, We are all part of the people of God in him. There's no Jew or Gentile. Um, So he's writing to the people of God. And this is James. This is uh, Jesus' half-brother. All right? There there are several James in the New Testament. But this one was written by um, Jesus' half-brother. And probably younger brother. There's no shortage of... uh, scholarly ink spilled over uh, the nature of <laughs> James' family relationship with Jesus. Um, it's a pretty intense theological debates as well, depending on what you think about Mary and whether she had kids after Jesus or not. Uh, but anyway, I don't know if that is that important to uh, the reasons why James wrote this letter. Uh, James rose to prominence in Jerusalem, and he was one of the pillars referred to, the pillars of the church referred to by Paul in Galatians when he says, 
you know, early on I went to Jerusalem and I, I found what seemed to be the pillars of the church. And James was one of those guys along with uh, Simon Peter. Um, so this is a guy who was a disciple of Jesus, was familiar with, with, with Jesus' teachings. But he also had unique insight, I think, into Jesus' life. And um, I think it's no coincidence that he focuses here on really practical uh, advice, practical exhortation on how to live your life, how our life is to be lived in this time. Um, it is a, a lot of people call it the, the, the Proverbs of the New Testament. And the reason for that is that it reads like a book of Proverbs. It doesn't follow necessarily like Peter or even Paul, uh, a clear line of reasoning or addressing certain issues. Paul often has a list of things that he needs to address in a letter. Um, James is giving a letter for the people of God so that they will know how to live wherever and whenever they read the letter. Okay, uh, This is a letter that's called an encyclical. I mean, it's meant to be distributed widely and um, in perpetuity for the people of God. So he's writing about wisdom, and wisdom, uh, we're actually going to study some of the wisdom literature in the beginning, the first quarter of next year. Uh, but, but wisdom is basically how you live in your current circumstances according to the will of God. All right? You can know the times. You can know the will of God. Wisdom is the, is the bridge that connects the two of those. How do we live out the will of God in our current time. And this is what James delivers to the people of God, an insight into wise living. Okay, the book of Proverbs is full of, you could call them aphorisms or maxims or just one-liners, whatever you want to call it. It's not so much a, a long essay format. It's, how about this? And here's this, and here's this. And so James is full of these, these little nuggets. But I would say there's an overall theme. There's an overall goal to the letter. And I think it's in verse uh, 2, 3, and 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So he's writing that they would know how to live. But even more than that, he's writing so that they would know how to be perfect and complete in the way that they live. And well, I'll get back to uh, what exactly that means. Um, all right, so it's a book about wisdom. It mixes, it sounds like Proverbs in some points. You know, Proverbs has a lot to say about money, right? What money does to a person and what true wealth or, or humility does to a person. And yeah, the rich are going to actually end up worse off and the poor are going to be lifted up. There's a lot like that in Proverbs. Uh, but it also echoes, in resounding ways, uh, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, which itself really is a, a, a piece of, of wisdom literature, um, if, among many other things. So I would say that this letter 
And some people have trouble with this letter. Some people in, in church history have had trouble with this letter because of its insistence upon practical living um, and works, you could say. They said, no, very much. You need to do works. But I think we need to understand that this letter assumes a reader's understanding of grace, of it's by grace that you are saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It assumes the reader's exposure to the gospel of Jesus, the good news of Jesus Christ, and acceptance of that. Okay? And so it's supplemental to the gospel. Okay? And so it, when you read it like that, I think all those problems really go away. This letter assumes that you understand the truth of the gospel, that you can't earn your way to heaven. Okay, so how then do we live? And this letter really fleshes that out for us. Um, he also makes many references to Scripture or the Word, which is very important. Uh, in living life, the Word is central. He says in um, verse 17, chapter 1, or 18, of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of its creatures. Uh, in chapter 2, talks about hearing and doing the word. Um, where does it say? Oh yeah, at the beginning, uh, end of chapter 1. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak. Uh, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. So he's a lot to say about living life in relation to the word and allowing the word to really lead you into wisdom. Okay? The presence of the word leads us into wisdom. All right, so... <clears throat> I really like the way that the, the Bible Project guys uh, broke down the book in terms of an outline. He says there's an introduction that really introduces all the main themes of the book. Um, and then there are, depending on how you divide it down, they divide it into 12 little segments of wisdom. And they're, they all have to do with how to live your life, but they're, they kinda, they're, they're not necessarily in any sequential order. Um, All right, so I don't, I'm, I'm not going to walk through that outline. How did I? Okay, there we go. Um, if you didn't watch that, go back and watch it. It gives you a great outline, how to, how to outline the book. What I did was I, um, I like, paused the video when they showed, like, the whole, after they're done drawing the whole thing, and they have all the references. And I just went and kind of made a little note next to each of the little brackets around each of those sections that they have pointed out and put a little number next to it. And it, it's, it's good because when you take them, when you take each of those sections as, you know, an independent unit, you can really hear what it's, what it's going for. Sometimes I will admit when I'm going through James, I kind of get lost along the way. I'm like, wait, so we started out talking about this and now we're talking about this. How do those two relate? But when you see it as, as more of an anthology of, with short wisdom teachings, it makes much more sense. And I think it, it holds together in, in, in your mind a lot easier. All right, but I want to talk about just the primary goal of being perfect and complete. Perfect and complete. 
Um, those two words are, are loaded with meaning. So perfect really means it's from the word telos, which is like the goal, the aim. And so it doesn't mean perfect, meaning that you are some sort of platonic ideal of a person, right? That you are flawless. What it means is that you are fully living out your purpose. You're accomplishing the purpose for which you were created, okay? And you can actually grow. We have in our minds that perfection is like this black or white, this on or off switch. It's either perfect or it's not. Uh, But in Scripture, I don't think that that's necessarily the idea of perfection. It's not perfectionism. Uh, Being perfect here is living according to your goal, and I think you can actually grow in perfection, if that that makes sense. You can grow in perfection. Um, When a two-year-old is doing all the things that a two-year-old should do, they're perfect. But if a 10-year-old is... doing all the things a two-year-old should do, they're not perfect. <laughs> as you grow and as you mature, what perfect means, what fulfilling your purpose means, differs a little bit, right? When you're a single person, there is perfection to be had when you're single. When you're married, perfection means a different thing, right? It means, tell us, you are, you are achieving your aim in life. So perfect is your, your um, you know, the opposite of perfection would be sin. Where it ta- sin, you've heard it just defined as missing the mark, right? Perfection is hitting the mark, right? When you're not hitting the mark, it's sin, and you're missing, you're missing the mark. Complete, that would be from the word where we get our word wholeness. Or holistic. Whole, entire, I think, is what King James says. I like that. Entire. He, uh, King James says that you may be perfect and entire. Of a piece. Right? Not fragmented. And really the big point that I want to look at in, in a couple places in this letter is how um, the goal is for us to become whole people. And James goes through and he lists many areas in which we are not whole. We are uh, fractured, fragmented. And this is what I think really ties the letter all together. Um, in, In almost each of the little sections in the body of the letter, he's identifying a place in which we as Christians, we as those who have responded to the gospel, still need to achieve perfection and wholeness where we have not. All right? And I think there is something deep for every person in here in, in one of these areas, or maybe many of the areas. Um, but I want to talk about fractured living, ways that we live that are, that are fragmented or fractured, and how uh, then the process by which God wants to bring us to wholeness and perfection. So the first one he talks about in chapter 1 is uh, doubting and being double-minded. Verse 5 of chapter 1, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, 
who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Okay, you have a contrast between faith and double-mindedness. Okay, someone who's double-minded um, is not really convinced that God is able to bring them to perfection. Is not really convinced that God will give when he's asked. <laughs> All right, and it really means, it, that, I mean, the, the word is really interesting. It's just two minds, two personalities. It's a split personality. Sometimes I really trust God. Sometimes I don't know if God really loves me. All right? Let him ask, but not in faith like, all right, uh, boom, there's wisdom. But faith meaning, yes, I trust God. I trust God that I lack wisdom. I've asked him, and I trust him that he will lead me in the way that I should go. And I'm leaning on him, and I'm putting my weight on him fully. And I don't go, all right, well, I'm trusting God. Um, maybe not. I'm leaning on something else. Oh, no, I'm back to trusting God. Oh, no, no, I got to pull back into this and, and find peace in, in this thing. Find comfort in this thing. Oh, no, I'm back to trusting God. Right? That person is blown about by the waves. Okay? This is someone who, you know, Abraham is the man of faith. Abraham heard God and he believed God. Yeah, you can make of me a great nation. But then Abraham at some point listened to his, his wife more than to God. And his wife was saying, I'm not really going to be able to have a child. We're going to have to make something happen. So Abraham went and made something happen. That was being of two minds. That was taking matters into his own hands. So asking, but ultimately doubting. Okay, and that doubting, this is a lack of trust in God. A lack, it really comes back to your, how convinced are you of the goodness of God, the fatherhood of God in your life. Another area of fractured living is in hearing, but not doing. There's a disconnect between what comes in and what we say amen to and then how we actually live. And this is a big one, right? This one and the one prior to this are, are really the big ones of the letter. Hearing but not doing. If you remember, this is how Jesus concludes the Sermon on the Mount. It's his big, so what, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And the parable of the man who built his house on the rock versus the man who built his house on the sand. Similar imagery there, right? The man who builds his house on the sand is like one who hears all these things, but then he goes and he does something different. And his house, when the winds come, it gets destroyed. Okay. 
Here, the, uh, the analogy is, is interesting. It's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. He looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. <laughs> he forgets what he is like. This is fractured living. I know what the mirror says. And as soon as my eyes get off the mirror, who am I? What do I look like? When we hear the word of God, and it comes in and we go, oh, yeah. Do not kill. Do not steal. Do not murder. Do not look at a woman to lust. Do not be angry in your heart towards your brother. Don't covet. Yeah. Worship only God. Don't get drawn away by covetousness into idolatry. Yes. Amen. And then as soon as our attention is elsewhere, we begin to do something that's different. Another way that we are fractured in the way that we live is when we show partiality. This is in chapter 2. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? We're fractured because we don't love, we're not loving people in the way that God loves them. We're loving them based on our initial perception, based on appearances. We're sizing people up immediately. And so, depending on the person, partiality really means respecting faces, right? Taking, judging by the face. If we're constantly sizing people up by their appearance, then there's no, there's no wholeness in us. There's no, there's no uh, completion or entirety in the way that we love each other. So partiality. Another way that we're fractured and divided is in our speech. He says you have one tongue, but you can use that to bless God and worship and hark the herald angels sing. And then mere hours afterwards, you can find yourself cursing somebody, cursing the Waiter at B-dubs who messed up your order. <laughs> or whatever. I looked back at Andrew and that was the first restaurant that came to my head. <laughs> right? How, how in the world can we do that? And then he goes on, he talks about how, you know, the, the tongue really is a tricky thing. Uh, your tongue is like the rudder to your body. But that's, why, that's a way that you're fragmented. Someone who's whole and perfect and complete, as he says at the end of the letter, their yes is yes and their no is no. And there's no division, there's no discrepancy between what they say and what they mean and what the truth is. Right? There's no duplicitous speech. 
It's just pure yes is yes, no is no. Another form of of fragmentation in our lives is when we have faith without works. And there's kind of two things, I think, that fall under this category that are summed up um, at the end of chapter 1. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. That's really a, a description of faith with the proper works. Faith with visiting orphans and widows, that would be actual servanthood. You know, instead of saying, go be warmed and filled, as he says, actually do something about the hunger or the cold or the nakedness of the person that you're addressing. So religion without real servanthood, but also religion that's tainted with worldliness keep oneself unstained from the world. And it's funny that this is a random thought. This is not this is just me. This isn't really the word of God. But it's always interesting to me how people tend to fall into one of those categories to the expense of another one. Right? Some people want to keep themselves unstained from the world, really need to get out and find some widows and orphans. Right? And people who are all about social justice are actually very worldly in the way they go about it. And they live adulterous lives and they're from divorced homes and all this stuff, right? We need both. We need to keep ourselves unstained from the world. And we need to actually lay our lives down for those who are needy. So faith without works. He says, I mean, it doesn't make sense. He, he draws this analogy, and I think it's extremely insightful. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, right? That's a whole person. When you take away one aspect of your personhood, you're fractured. You're incomplete, right? A body without a spirit or a spirit without a body. Either one would be Incomplete. As the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. They're, they're of a piece. They are a whole package. Okay? Another way we live fractured lives is when we are f- friends, we try to make friends with the world and, and remain also friends with God. Now, this one's pretty pretty obvious you know if if you you can't be friends with the world and be friends with god at the same time because they're at enmity with another now we don't mean friends with trees that's that's not the world that it's talking about here or friends with uh, animals we're not talking about the created order we're talking about the system that's opposed to god kind of in the in the john sense the way that john uses the word the world it's the system that lives according to the principles of mankind apart from God. And if you try and make yourself a friend of that system, you're going to find yourself at odds with God. Chapter 4 is really all about that. 
Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever wishes to make himself a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You can't be split, right? You're going to be all one or all the other. And then finally, a way that we are fractured is by the extent to which we trust in worldly wealth or worldly riches. And all these, you know, these overlap in different ways. But he has a lot to say about those who are rich in, world, in the currency of the, of the present age. And he says, actually, the, the, the richer you are, the more you should be grieving for how much you're going to lose when it all gets swept away. Right? More money, more problems. <laughs> That's what he's talking about. Because a rich man is all about this, the procurement and the stewardship of wealth. And all of that's going to go away. And so what his life is really aimed at is based on a mist. And so when, when, when the sun comes, then it's, the mist is going to show, be shown to be mist. And the grass is going to be shown to be just that. It's just grass. And in light of the sun... It withers. And so the rich, he says, um, let the rich boast in his humiliation. (laughs) And he says, um, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted. Your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. So trusting in worldly wealth really divides us as a person. And it fractures our our life. All right. So James is is giving us wisdom. James is showing us how to live. And he says there's lots of ways to live that actually divide you as a person. They, They fracture your life. He says, but wisdom is available. Wisdom is available if you will ask God. But when you ask God, you need to be ready to do what he tells you. You see how this all works together? I don't know how to live. Well, pretty soon, if you start to ask God, and he starts telling you things, and you're not doing those things, then the problem isn't you don't know how to live. The problem is you don't know how to obey. And your lack of wisdom is a lack of obedience. All right? Because time and time again, he says, don't be deceived. God gives good gifts. God will give wisdom to you if you ask. But listen to how you, listen to how you ask. Why are you asking? And do you really believe? Do you really trust what God is saying to you? Right? 
This is a different thing than just believing that God wants to tell me how to live. It's trusting what God actually says about how to live. You see that? That's faith. Because what does he say? It's not just enough to say, oh yeah, I believe that God's giving me wisdom for how to live. But you're not doing it. Right? All of this works together. If you're not doing it, then you don't really trust it. But if you do it, and this is, this is the real secret of wisdom, right? This is the real secret of wisdom. The one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts. This is verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 25. He will be blessed in his doing. There is blessing that does not come until you do. There is wisdom that isn't shown to be wisdom until you really test it. Put it into practice. Submit yourself to it. That's what he means when he says, receive with meekness the implanted word. Oh, God will give it to you. He'll pour it out into your heart. The bottleneck here is not God's giving bottleneck is you're receiving and living what he's given you. Receive with meekness. That's an action on our part. That's a response on our part. A receiving with meekness. What God tells us about how to live. All right, so James was the brother of Jesus. Jesus went around and he called people to come follow him. And what he was doing when he was coming, asking people to come follow him was he was saying, come be my disciples. Come learn from me. Come learn what? Come learn how to live in the way that you were supposed to live. Okay, so what James is urging us to is to be disciples of Jesus. And everything that he says about how to live, we can apply to our pursuit of Jesus and discipleship. Does this make sense? All right, so he says, well, if you don't know how to live, ask God for wisdom. If you don't know how to live, you're a disciple of Jesus. What's he telling you about how to live? He wants to teach you. Wisdom develops through discipleship to Jesus. Wisdom develops through discipleship to Jesus. Um, A while ago when we talked about discipleship, um, Dallas Willard defines discipleship as learning learning from Jesus how he would live your exact life. 
He's able to teach us. That's wisdom. It's also discipleship. And so if you read James and you come away thinking, oh man, that's, just, that's a pretty high standard. I, I don't know if I can... I mean, I, I hear the thing about hearing and doing the word, but man, I can't just go and do it. But you're right, that's the point. You can't just go be like Jesus either. You can go follow Jesus and learn from him how to be like him. And as you follow him, he will teach you. And as he teaches you, and as you respond in obedience, then you begin to look more and more like him. This is the process that he's calling us to. Ask God for wisdom. But as soon as you ask, you've got to be ready to do. If any man would come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. Count the cost. Lay it aside. Decide to do exactly what I'm going to do. What I say uh, to do. Decide to be a teacher. I mean, a, a student of a teacher. A servant of the master. But Jesus, time and time again, clarifies that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And that as we follow him, he will show us how to do it. And he will give us what we need. And for every do it this way, and James actually mentions this, for every do it this way, he pours out a blessing for us to be able to do it that way. But we have to trust. Or else we're going to be blown all over the place. We're going to start, and I don't, I don't, I don't, it might be too hard, or I don't know. I don't, I don't know if I believe that. I don't know if I trust it. No, you've got to just do it. You've got to commit. You've got to sell out. Do it that way. And you will, you will find something that you can't find unless you sell out. All right, so, and that leads us to perfection. Okay, so perfection is not, all right, doing all the right things all the time, every single time, being, um, being a perfect specimen of a man or a woman. Perfection is much more of a process. Perfection is a process by which, because honestly, that, that's what we were created to be, dependent creatures who respond to the word of God as it relates to how to live. Right? A perfect person doesn't know how to do all the right things. A perfect person knows how dependent they are and from that place of dependence trusts and obeys what the word of God says. This is all the way back in Genesis. If you do this, look, what the life, look at the life that you have. If you respond to my word and live life, eat of the tree of life, live according to what I say in the way that I designed this place, it's going to be flourishing life. All right, so count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. All right, you're going to go through life, and you're going to find that, wow, this is hard. Right? There are trials that come from without. And it's also kind of a similar thing. It's the same word in Greek, but it gets translated temptations when it's sort of a trial from within, when it's from your own desires. Your desires are going to try and get you off track. 
Life is going to get you off track. Maybe it's other people. And James says, this is perfect. All right. This is where, this is where the fork in the road is. A trial brings you to a fork in the road. You've got your desires here. You've got this obstacle here. You've got this temptation here. Well, ask God. Which fork, should, which path should I take? And he says, go this way. And you go that way. So it's joyful when we, when we have trials because then the will of God can really work itself out in our lives. And as we go through trials, this is the process of perfection. Living life and at every juncture, asking God, consulting God, receiving the word of God and obeying that in faith and in trust. And the testing of your faith, because it tests your faith. Do I really believe this? Is this really, am I convinced of this? Produces steadfastness or endurance. Or the ability to just stay. And that's the opposite of being blown by the waves. That's being on the, building your house on the rock. Steadfast. Enduring. It produces steadfastness. And steadfastness leads to perfection and completeness. So how do we achieve perfection? And how do we become whole and complete? We live life at every moment with this process in mind. And at every, at every moment we go, I don't know what to do. We ask God for wisdom. Or we remember what, we, what, he's, what he's already told us. I mean, in many cases, it's just a matter of, oh, yeah. <laughs> right? I really want to get angry at my children right now. I know what the answer is. I know that, okay, I'm not going to get angry at my children. In many of these things, we know the answer. And the problem is not that we lack the information, but that we really haven't, in faith, trusted it. We've asked, but we've kind of doubted, and we've wavered. All right, so just like in the Sermon on the Mount, the key isn't, all right, be perfect, now go and do it. All through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is pulling people into be perfect because that's what your father's like. If you really want to get, if you really want to be close to him, well, seek him and, and know that he's your father. Go into your closet and pray and the father who sees you in secret will, will reward you. Don't pursue this life in a religious way. That's what James is saying too. You know how Jesus says, beware of practicing your religion before others? Beware of trying to live a perfect and complete life in order to just be seen in that way. No, how do we do this? We go and we seek our Father and we pursue Him and He rewards us and He'll give us those things and then we can trust Him. So, when life tries us, either through temptation, uh, from our own desires, or from testing from some external source, 
we come to the who are we going to consult? Whose wisdom are we going to live in? Mine or God's? And every time that we choose God's, there's a blessing poured out and there's a, 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 a further step toward wholeness and completion. And the more you do it, the more the cement hardens under your life. And that cement is steadfastness. And once it's fully hardened, you're perfect and, and you're complete. And whatever comes in your way, wherever your life takes you, whatever situation you find yourself in, you're fully dependent on God and fully submitted to his way. And that's, that's perfection and completeness. And you don't say one thing and not really mean it. You don't bless God and then curse your brother. You don't hear the word and then just go away and keep forgetting it continually. You don't go around with some sort of religious faith, but it's not really a practical faith. There's no fruit of it in your life. And you don't, and you aren't, you don't flirt with the edges of worldliness and kind of get along with worldly ways and then also try and be friends with God. There are very hard lines in your life and, and you stick to those things. All right, so he says, be patient therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Be patient, steadfast, endure. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains? You also be patient. Establish your hearts. Every day we need to practice, 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 and exercise our will. Exercise yielding our will to the will of God. Exercise doing what we know we should do. And the more we do that, the more our hearts are established. But the coming of the Lord is at hand. All right. So that was, that was the big thing. There's probably an area in which you really are fractured. I think I'm in all of the areas, you know, honestly. <laughs> I don't know where to start. Um, there's an area that is not whole. It's not perfect. And the response here isn't go, oh, man, i got to go fix that. The response here is to figure out why... Why is it like that in your life? Have you honestly, in faith, just obeyed what you know God is telling you? And have you done that over and over and over? Or has it gotten to, yeah, I see it, I know it, but man, I just haven't been able to put it into practice. If you're there, and if there's... If there's uh, fragmentation in your life, fracture in your life, in any of these areas, the answer is to just go try and do exactly what God says. I mean, you may, you may need to have a revelation. You may need to 
go humble yourself before God and really see him more clearly or hear the word more clearly. But probably what you need to do, even more than that, is just go do what the word says. Dig down. Dig down. Put your house on the foundation. All right, so I just want to remind us that Jesus, Jesus is the source of all of this in our lives. We consult Jesus. We ask Jesus. We reach out to him and we trust him. And we follow him and we learn from him how to live our life. And as we respond in obedience, we become more and more like him in the way that we live. All right, that's, uh, that's the, big, the big thought uh, in, the, in the letter of James. Um, all right, so we're going to go just right into communion. And this is a great way for us to respond um, and to, to ask God to come and make this real in our lives, uh, not, just to, um, not just to not just to hear it, but to come up and, and ingest it and receive it into our lives and then go out and live. Uh, so let's pray and then we'll uh, spend some time in communion.